Hello and welcome back to the Club Soda Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Drew Yeager. How are you doing, Drew? I'm very good, Noah. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm very well and I'm very excited for this episode of Beyond Booze. Yeah, because who have we got on today? Today we have Mr. Derek Brown. So this is a name which is not necessarily going to, like, the Club Soda audience is not going to go, oh, oh my God, they've got Derek Brown. People are going to go, who? So do you want to kind of, like, fill in the details about why this guy is an amazing big deal and why his opinions about mindful drinking and cocktails and everything else are definitely worth listening to. I mean, you'll know very quickly into the episode why he's such a big deal and, and such an inspiration to me uh, coming from a bartending cocktails background and wine background. I mean, name any accolade or award in America and he has received. He has been working in the industry under different roles for a really long time and used to run the Columbia Room in Washington, which some mm-hmm. people will know as, you know, have won Best Bar in America. And he's done some really prolific things. But a few years ago, he uh, he removed drinking from his life and then kind of changed the course of his career, started running a thing called the Mindful Drinking Festivals, which was inspired by mm-hmm. ourselves and now runs a company called Positive Damage Inc. and is doing loads of amazing things for our industry when it comes to alcohol-free. And yeah. you know, we, we dig deep into everything he's done and is doing in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the moment where I went, oh, yeah, this is he, this is a big deal. It's, I think it was on his Instagram where he was tagged on somebody else's Instagram. And he was at a meeting at the White House. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, you are a big deal this is <laughs> this is a this is a catch Noah so thanks for getting him on the podcast he's uh pretty legit and yeah I, w- I was uh blown away when he accepted my offer to be on the pod um what an incredible man what uh, one inspiration here he is all right welcome back to the club soda podcast I am here today with a very special guest, super honored to have him with us today. He's a bartender, he's an author of books such as Mindful Mixology and Spirits, Sugar, Water, Bitters, How the Cocktail Conquered the World. He's a wellness coach, he's the founder of Positive Damage Inc. He previously owned the Columbia Room in Washington, DC, which was awarded 2017's Spirited Awards Best American Cocktail Bar. He was named Bartender of the Year by Imbi Magazine in 2015, and in 2023, listed as one of the Imbibe 75, quoted as being one of the most inspirational people that will shape how we drink in 2023. I'm here with Derek Bryan. Hi, Derek. Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for being here. I I first became engaged with your story at the tail end of kind of last year when I was reading a food and wine article that spoke about your approach to mindful drinking, as well as your adoration for punk and hardcore music and how there's so many parallels between the two industries and how music played its part in you learning at an early age about sobriety lifestyles and straight edge culture. I think it's really interesting that your journey of being a bartender and so much DIY attitude and the the self-teaching aspects ties in with punk rock. And now when you frame this in the modern day lens, how quitting drinking is, let's be honest, a little punk rock, right? Yeah, I think so. It can be, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I find that an incredibly inspiring read, not only as a bartender, but also as a musician in a previous life. And, you know, just thank you for being such a key voice in the industry and being uh, the role model that you are and, and helping move things forward. So, it, you know, I'm honored to have you t- here today. Oh, I'm great. I'm grateful to be here and can't wait to get into it. So let's dive straight into it. Go back as far as you want. Let's talk about your bartending history, your background, and kind of all of the stuff you've got up to in the cocktail world. Well, you mentioned punk rock, so we might as well start there. Um, you know, I think that, you know, what was really cool about that, and we won't spend a lot of time on straight edge or punk rock, but it's worth noting because I think that sometimes we associate not drinking with being lame, honestly. You know, like sometimes people think, oh, it's all church basements. It's no fun. Um, And I think that 
I was lucky in that when I encountered punk rock and straight edge, it was a hell of a lot of fun, you know, and it was really cool. And it was not, a, you know, it was about being yourself. Um, it was about staying true to yourself, being positive and avoiding things that, that, you know, you felt were going to hurt you or harm you. And so that was cool. And I think that that gave me this backdrop to think about, you know, who I am and what I wanted to be. And, and honestly, it, it led me to, to feel comfortable standing out and not, fitting in with the mainstream and the way everyone else is going, which I think is sometimes what happens with drinking, that people feel pressured into it. They feel peer pressure. They feel stress. Um, they feel they just have to do it, right, to be social. And so I, I was very lucky early on to get a window into how you can be different than that and still have a great time and still feel connected to people. Um, unfortunately, I think as time went on, that message was a little bit kind of buried in the service industry and in the restaurant and bar and hospitality industry. Because I started when I was 16 working in bars and restaurants, and that's where I learned to drink, right? And so, so I often ask people, and I'm going to ask you this question as well. I often ask, where did you learn to drink? Um, and the answers are, 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 are pretty common, but I'd, I guess I'd ask you that question. Where did you learn to drink? Where did I learn to drink? I learned to drink in sticky floor music venues because I was playing in indie bands from the age of 13. I was playing in bars and clubs that I wasn't allowed to get into as a punter, but as a musician and a performer, I could get in and I could get free drinks and I'd get to know the bartenders and they'd serve me free drinks. So that's, you know, I, that's where I cut my teeth of drinking. Yeah, well, it's not that uncommon for somebody to say it was, you know, a peer or it was a, a older relative or it was my a sibling um, or it was in college or it was, you know, in bars and clubs. None of these places are the best place to learn about alcohol. And all, all these places <laughs> no. are wonderful places and wonderful people. But I, for instance, was handed a beer ball and said, this is how you drink, you know. Okay. Um, that is not an appropriate way to drink, I don't think. Um, of course, I'll leave it up to each person to decide that for themselves. But personally, I don't want to do beer bongs, especially at the age of 48. So, um, so, I, so I think that, you know, I learned to drink in the bar from siblings, but also for, from the bar and restaurant industry, from old grizzled line cooks and lifetime waitresses, you know. And that is not necessarily the they're wonderful people honestly um but but they were dealing with their own issues their own trauma their own experience and so i think that i learned that way and the only really rule around it was show up for your shift on time right so it doesn't really yeah. matter what you do go out drink and i lived a very vampiric life for a long time where you know i worked till four in the morning and then drank till eight in the morning uh went to sleep woke up around 3.15, which is about 15 minutes after my shifts was supposed to start and rushed to work, you know? So, so I didn't even follow the rule that I'm supposed to be on time. But, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is that's a really not the best way to learn how to drink. And so, so that's how it went for me. And as I progressed in my, you know, career in hospitality and beverage, you know, I started becoming a bartender, which I loved being, um, I own my own bar. At that point, it was completely and absolutely normal and reasonable to drink an insane amount of alcohol every night, to be hungover every morning, and to rinse and repeat, just keep doing the same thing over and over again, to the point where there was an example um, that I was in, uh, I, I think I was in Kentucky at the time, and I was at a distillery, and I had been previously to the to a, a spirits competition, um, and then I went to a craft spirits competition, and then I went on the bourbon trail. And in the course of a, about two weeks, I drank about six hundred drinks because I also would drink in the evening for fun, right? And I drink a lot. Now I didn't, I didn't actually consume all of those beverages, especially when I was tasting them as a spirits judge at the, at the spirits competition. I would expect greater spit amount. So, but yeah. you still absorb 
some of the alcohol in your mouth long. Um, and so I ended up drinking, I don't know how many drinks, but it was a lot. And so I was at this distillery in Kentucky and I started sweating profusely. I went to the bathroom and I thought maybe I had food poisoning or something, but my whole skin was just covered in sweat to the point where my shirt was like, I needed to wring it out. And, um, I just kind of was like, okay, well, I mean, I got, maybe I have like food poisoning or something. And, and I walked out of there and I didn't really pay it much attention until later on, I realized that my liver was giving up on me, that it was overheating, you know, that I drank too much and I poisoned myself to an extent where I was putting my life at risk. And even that did teach me that I was at a place that I needed to change my behaviors. So uh, time went on and, and, and more things happened. And finally, I got to a point where I realized this just wasn't working for me. It was my um, son was born and all my relationships were kind of in the, in the trash. You know, like even some of my closest friends were like, what are you doing? You know, and, you know, my finances were bad. My health was awful. Um, and so I, I decided to make a change. And I went into an outpatient program which gave me a dual diagnosis, which means that I have mental health issues, uh, bipolar depression, as well as um, alcohol use disorder. Um, that to me still didn't mean that I was an alcoholic, right? Um, because I felt that I was able to stop. I was. Um, but I wasn't able to do that without addressing the mental health component of it. So that to me was a little bit of the more of the forefront of it. I had to deal with things that I really hadn't thought a lot about in my life, my own past traumatic experiences, um, my childhood growing up. Um, so so I, I started going through therapy. I started using therapeutic drugs. Um, and I started, you know, taking better care of myself and, and taking better care of my relationships. And all of that contributed to recognizing that I didn't really need alcohol in my life. So I'm going to put a pin there because I think I covered, you know, 40 years in a flash. So so I'll let, if there's any questions about that, I'll stop here. That was fantastic. Thank you for your honesty. And yeah, a very well summarized history. You know, yeah, our, our bar culture, our hospitality culture is is not known for being too, too healthy. You know, it's a hedonistic lifestyle um, and that's that's being pretty light about it how how have you seen the industry develop over the last few years in terms of approaches of other bartenders you know there's there's people like yourself there's other notable industry individuals in the states like jack mcgarry who owns dead rabbit and josh harris you know there's people who have gone on to do incredible things while staying in the industry and being sober what contributing factors are there towards more and more individuals in hospitality becoming more mindful drinkers? Well, well, those guys were completely inspirational to me. Um, they, you know, they, when they stood out and said they had a problem and they're at the top of their game, it helped me to understand I could also stand up and, and say my piece too and, and change my behaviors. And, and I don't identify, like I said, as an alcoholic, in, I think the exact same way they do, but I do recognize, you know, the need for that approach too, and the need for a multiplicity approaches to alcohol use. And so I think that they're super inspirational. And I've seen over the last, you know, three or four years, a, a real sea change in the way our industry talks about alcohol and drugs and mental health. Um, and I think that's absolutely needed. You know, according to SAMHSA, there's one in five, which is the American Mental Health um, Organization, there is one in five people in the restaurant and bar hosp hospitality industry that have a substance use disorder. And when I say that to people in the industry, they mo almost always laugh at me, not because it's sad, you know, they're not laughing at the, the people, they're laughing at the fact that they, it's only one in five, there's probably a lot more than that, that are not reported, because it is ultimately self reported, right. Um, and a person has to come to, to the decision that they have a problem to be able to approach it. Um, and, and unfortunately, the, you know, denying that problem is part of the disease, or as they say, disease in quotes. So I think that um, 
it's we've seen this sea change and so many great voices have stood up. Julia Bainbridge is another person who's a writer um, who has who has talked about her own sobriety um, and and that relationship, which is again a little different than uh, alcoholism as as we talk about it as a disease. But I think that you know that has led to more and more people at least approaching me and talking to me about their own problems. And I think it's 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 led to a kinder and gentler um, industry. So people are more aware of the problems with this type of alcohol and drug use. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. But I do think there's a lot farther to go. Uh, because right now, it might be talked about in certain circles, but there are lots of bars and restaurants. Sometimes we, the media really gloms onto the top tier you know, the Columbia rooms and the dead rabbits and of the world. Um, and it, it ignores that there's a bar that's opening tomorrow on St. Patrick's Day. I don't know when this will air, but we're doing it the day before St. Patrick's Day and in the U.S. And that bar is going to be completely flooded with people just getting hammered in green gear and orange beards <laughs> like leprechauns. Um, and for most people, that'll be fine. They'll just wake up, have a hangover, and they'll get over it. And hopefully that won't be a big part of their lives. But for some people, it will be life and death. And some people behind that bar, it will be life and death. And so I think that, you know, that little Irish pub somewhere in the United States that isn't winning awards, and maybe this, you know, they're not listening to podcasts by Derek Brown. They don't really care who I am. That needs a little bit of more work. We need to reach those people too. Um, because it's not just a small group in the industry, but it's everyone. We need to bring everyone along. Very true. Very true. Yeah, I think we can we can get caught up in our echo chambers sometimes and think that, you know, there is certainly a sea change, but we shouldn't get carried away with uh, the actual impact that's happening. You know, we need to keep realistic and, and keep doing the work every day to help others in all walks of life, for sure. Absolutely. What does mindful drinking mean to you? I know, you know, club soda, similarly to positive damage ink, kind of has a quite a uh, a mindset that that doesn't exclude people. It's about inclusivity. It's about what you're drinking when you're drinking. It's not about preaching sobriety necessarily, although that can work for some people. It's about all different. It's about behavioral change, right? You know, what, what does mindful drinking mean to you? And, you know, how did that lead to starting Positive Damage Inc.? Tell us about that. Well, Laura was a huge influence in me thinking about the term mindful drinking and recognizing that it is a, a, a bigger tent to, 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 to put people under. Because I think that very often when they are stuck on this idea of sobriety, um, it, it, it cast judgment on people, right? People feel judged. They feel like, oh, well, that means I'm, I'm bad or I'm, I'm not good or I'm not going to be able to, you know, ever go to a bar again or, or drink again. And I have to, you know, give up everything and sit in my room and sip soda water. Um, and what mindful drinking to me means is drinking with intentionality and it doesn't really determine how or what you drink. It's not about abstinence or even moderation. In that regard, even though I think those are important parts of it, um, it's about a person aligning their drinking or not drinking with their life goals, right? And some of those are health goals as well. So I think that if you the way you drink doesn't match what you want out of life, out of every experience, then um, that's that's something you have to work to change. And for a lot of people, the you know their drinking is about peer pressure or stress um, or habit. And I think that, you know, that is, those are really poor reasons or really bad reasons to drink, even though I understand why people do drink. Um, and so, you know, with mindful drinking, it, it's about this sort of intrinsic decision, you know, like you're saying, I want to change the way I drink based on how I want to feel and the, my life goals. And I think that's what it's about. It's that simple. And it's not about judgment because, um, again, people can feel tremendously judged, uh, for drinking and 
that'll even kind of push them further towards shame and feeling bad about themselves and drinking more. And I, <laughs> I, I think that for me, I would rather approach it in this way. Although, again, I think there are a lot of people in quote unquote recovery um, who are focused on their sobriety and not having any alcohol at all. And I do say, you know, that's not the area that I deal in. Um, that's not my expertise. I do personally not drink anymore, right? I don't drink anymore. So you could say that I was in recovery or sober, but um, I don't usually say that about myself. Um, but I'm when it comes to recovery, I guess I would be only an expert on myself. Um, when it comes to mindful drinking, I think that that, again, is a bigger tent and has to do more in the realm of, you know, just drinking intentionally. Fantastic. That leads me on to say, you know, Club Soda ran quite a few for a long time. The Mindful Drinking Festival. Mm-hmm. That's right. Very cool. Uh, your last one looked extremely popular. Yeah. No, it, it was awesome to see. I mean, Mindful Drinking Festival in the UK is also an inspiration. And, and it seems like um, you all have a really great formula that works for you there. In the U.S., we started Mindful Drinking Fest, a poor way to distinguish the two because the evil is not on it. But it was an attempt <laughs> to try to, to, to at least have a different hashtag so people knew that there are different experiences. But but what we did is something similar in terms of the tasting portion of it, right? Ultimately, we had, um, you know, at this last one, we had... Uh, 30 plus vendors and, and over 90 products, which is really cool. Um, and then we had a party associated with it in the evening, which I think was for me, the funnest part of it, the most fun part of it. And um, we also had like a, um, a, a cocktail competition and some wellness events that went along with it. So it was really, you know, it was really cool. I know that a lot of people in the space of uh, knowing low are also interested in health. So incorporating that wellness thing was very big for us. Um, and we are going to keep going with it. So we had about 360 plus people, which is really cool. We only intended to have 300 um, and we're going to keep growing. So our next one is in the works right now. and would be in LA in October. Fabulous. That is exciting. Let's talk about some cocktails. Let's get into it. Yeah. You and I both have a long background in cocktail curation, mainly alcohol. When it comes to alcohol-free cocktails, it's a very different approach. I know you've written a book on this and uh, you're very well versed in the alcohol-free space, but there's a lot of bartenders who maybe aren't embracing it so much at the moment uh, because you can be let down if you try and make one non-alcoholic cocktail and it, and it doesn't, you know, it can fall flat, especially if you're just trying to replicate exactly spec for spec, right? It's not how it works. It's a, it's a different game of balancing. It's a different game of textures. It's a different game of ingredients. Let's start by, do you have any specific tips and tricks for no and low alcohol cocktails? Is there anything that you've really found works that helps carry the drink without alcohol? Yeah, I, you know, my first book, which was Spirit, Sugar, Water, Bitters, How the Cocktail Conquered the World, the, the ingredients are of the cocktail, um, the historic definition from the United States in 1806 is spirit sugar water bitters, right? Um, so ostensibly that's sort of what people have been using to define the cocktail, but we don't, nobody really calls like that alone a cocktail anymore, right? It's not just the old fashioned that's a cocktail. It's uh, sours, punches, flips, all of these different drinks are under that umbrella term. And so I think you know, it's really, we can't really define the word cocktail by that, um, by that definition anymore. Of course, you might know this, that the first mention of the cocktail is actually in 17, I think 92, um, or, or 98. I'm, I, I, there's, there's, there's some fuzziness on the last year now. I can't, I, I can't remember, but it's in the 1790s, um, in a London paper called the morning gazetteer. And I, um, it was, uh, uh, mention of the cocktail and Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller 
discovered this. And this is the, the first mention of a cocktail in print. Have you seen that before? I'm not sure if I have. I'm not sure if I've seen the the exact print. Yeah, that is yeah. interesting. Pretty cool. And 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 it's in reference to a prime minister at the time whose name is Mr. Pitt. Um, and it is it in parentheses it says vulgarly called ginger. So that vulgar part of it is because it relates to something. And now this is not safe for work. So everybody be aware of that in podcast land. Um, I'm going to say something that you should not broadcast to children and workmates. But um, apparently there's something called figging, which involves a person putting a piece of ginger into a horse's rectum. Have you heard of that? If you have and you don't want to say so, that's okay too. (laughs) But I would not Google this if I was you. Do not Google it um, because it will not come up with things that you want to see. But um, the word cocktail comes from that word cocktail, which which is about figging. It's about cocking the tail of the horse, and it makes the wow. horse more, appear more lively, which anyone would feel more lively under such circumstances. So there's a lot of references to that. It's, it's history, folks. It's there. Um, but that's likely why they called it the cocktail, because bartenders are funny now, and they were funny then, too. Right. So they're making fun of Mr. Pitt, they're calling it vulgarly called it ginger. But nowhere in that definition does it say that the cocktail has alcohol. Um, and in fact, the price of it is significantly less than other drinks. So that led David Wondrich, who is a historian of the United States and a writer, um, to speculate that it might be a non-alcoholic drink. Um from talking to Jared and Anastasia, they do not believe that. They think that it still had alcohol in it and that that was just part of the joke. So it is controversial, but it is not certain that it had alcohol in it. So all of this roundabout way of saying the, the definition of the cocktail does not, in my mind, have to include alcohol. But I think there are certain sort of organoleptic or sensory, sensory characteristics that are you know, we've come to accept this as part of being an alcohol. And, and uh, one of them is intensity of flavor, right? We expect most uh, cocktails to be flavorful, um, and that's forward. You know, it's a, an intense part of the drink. Uh, we expect it as some aspect of piquancy or bite to it, right? So it's, um, you know, for, for people who remember having a shot of tequila or whiskey, that, you know, bite after yeah. you take that. Um, and, and a lot of times that's bitterness, right? Um, but it can be other things as well. It can be um, acidity or tartness and, um, and, and, and other um, sensory characteristics. But then there's a certain length that is usually taken up by the spirit itself, if it's alcohol. And so if you have just like a lemonade, you can't really call that a cocktail per se. But if you add an ounce and a half of gin to it, then it's a Tom Collins. So, you know, there's a certain length that is not taken up by juice or sugar per se. Um, And I think that that's an important component of it. And then lastly, there's a certain texture to a cocktail, right? There's a weight to it. It doesn't feel like tea or water or or even just lemon juice. It is more weighty than that. And that textural aspect is really important to it. So those are the four sort of sentences. Uh, sensory characteristics that I identified that I thought were important to defining a cocktail with or without alcohol. And so starting from that, I thought, okay, well, now you can use those to build a cocktail, right? You can look at things like ginger, <laughs> but I'll go back to the <laughs> history and, and, and you can use ginger, you can use um, capsicum, you can use bitterness to create the piquancy of it. You can um, use uh, certain things like aquafaba to increase the uh, viscosity or the texture of it. You can, you know, use bitters. Now they have non-alcoholic bitters, like uh, all the bitters, all the bitter, sorry, that uh, really can create that intensity of flavor. But you can, you know, use lots of things to create that. So, but if you know those four parts of it, then you can sort of plug in ingredients. And so I'll give you an example of one cocktail I created that was that, that uses all of that. And, and funny enough, it started out as lemonade. So okay. it is called the pinch hitter. It's in my book and it has lemon juice 
It has ginger syrup, but then to it, I add a um, bar spoon of apple cider vinegar. Um, and vinegar, of course, is a byproduct of alcohol. So it actually has a lot of that funkiness, that intensity to it. Um, salt tincture, an aquafaba. And so by adding that, the ginger aquafaba vinegar to quote unquote lemonade, it, it makes it taste like a real sour. You know, it's, it's uh, in my mind, almost like a, a new um, DNA for a non-alcoholic sour. And, and so that, that's kind of how I think about building non-alcoholic cocktails and, and how I would go about doing it. Fantastic. Really, some really great tips in there. I think, I think vinegar and, and salt are two things people should not underestimate that bring a real, and of course, all the bitter, a real charm to AF cocktails for sure. Yeah. We've mentioned it a bit. There's that, there is that crossover on the diagram when it comes to mindful drinking and wellness. And with that, I think we're seeing an increase in people being concerned about sugar and sugar consumption in cocktails and sugar reduction in alcohol-free cocktails. And I and I know we can all agree we don't want, you know, uh, a, a drink that just tastes like sugar, but there there is an element of of trying to, you know, make some wonderful sugar syrups and cordials that go well into these AF cocktails that, that, you know, they are a big part of it. How do we create alcohol-free cocktails that don't rely too much on sugar usage? Yeah, that's something I've dipped into lately. I didn't, it's not that I didn't take it serious before. It's just that I didn't really know how to approach it before because my training in cocktails are classic cocktails and classic cocktails use sugar. They use sugar, they use honey, they use syrups. Um, and so I, I guess it was a bit overwhelming um, to try to approach this sort of what is an alternative. Um, but along the way, I got some really great advice on how to do it. Um, one is by a, a, a flavor scientist who made suggestions on the way that you can actually um, create a drink that is perceived as more sweet, right? There's certain aspects that you can do to that, whether it's a coloration of it, like Red is perceived as more sweet than other colors, um, or just the shape of the glass. A circular, um, uh, a circular glass is going to appear more sweet than a square glass. Most mm. of us we have circles, so little things like that. Even the sound, you know, high pitch versus low pitch can affect uh, a per- the way a person tastes uh, stuff. So, uh, an example of that is when you're in a restaurant. Um, Chefs tend to use a lot more salt and fat, right? Um, because they, you need more intensity of flavor because the, the sound is overwhelming. So all of our senses are tied together. You know, people tend to think of it, the senses as separate, but we don't experience it like that, right? We see, mm. we taste, we hear all at the same time. Most of, most of us, obviously there's variations in each person. So, so we sense things together. And so it makes sense no pun intended, that, you know, things like the shape or the sight um, and the sound of something might affect it. But but th- that's a little high level. And and honestly, it's not like you can just have a round drink that's red <laughs> and it's going to taste sweet. That's not how that works. It just enhances the sweetness. So other uh, things are, are alternative sweeteners. You know, there are um, artificial sweeteners. And uh, I think the problem with those are, First and foremost, that to some people they taste very chemical, and that chemical taste is not pleasant, um, and so that can h- kind of be hard to introduce into into a bar. Um, and there are some studies that kind of pin this or that to um, you know something that might be uh, 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 bad for our health, and so I think sometimes those studies get a little overblown, but they probably do point to something and it's worth understanding. And it's true. Uh, we don't really understand a lot of the negative ramifications of artificial sweeteners. So I, I would say approaching that with caution is, is probably a, a good way to approach it. Um, there's erythritol, which is like monk fruit and stevia. Those are considered more natural and, and, and natural here depends on the circumstances under which they're created. Um, but there are quote unquote natural sweeteners uh, like stevia that you can get in a liquid form um, that I think 
can, can add sweetness. Again, that particular substance, there was a study that came out recently that linked it to blood clots in people who already had cardiovascular disease. That is not applicable to a general population, but it does raise a flag. So it's worth kind of considering that. And I would also say it's worth considering that in relationship to the negative health effects of sugar itself, right? Because we're talking about an inc- uh, a, a substance that's as addictive in some cases as cocaine, as they say. Um, yeah. but, but one that is certainly, you know, um, has health problems associated with all these metabolic diseases, you know, cardiovascular health and diabetes and so forth. Um, sugar affects those certainly glucose in this case. So, um, but, but I'm not, an, you know, I'm, I'm throwing out these big words and I'm trying to explain, I'm not an expert on sugar at all. All I'm trying to suggest is that there are all of these different, um, kind of sweeteners, some artificial, some considered natural that are worth exploring. I think that as a bartender checking in and kind of learning about this can actually really be fun. You know, like you can use those in the way that you started using honey or maple syrup or what have you to try to create new cocktails out of them. Um, And of course, there are cocktails that don't even have sugar, which are kind of interesting and fun in themselves. The official cocktail of D.C. I'm broadcasting from Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States. And um, we have an official cocktail. It's called the Ricky. And the Ricky is gin rye or bourbon there it actually sometimes can be made with almost any spirit but it's uh usually one and a half to two ounces of spirit um a lime that's squeezed and dropped into the glass and then sparkling mineral water it was originally made probably with apollinaris water which is really minerally and especially minerally back then now it's owned by coca-cola i think and it's less mineral than it was um but um so so yeah so so that has zero sugar in it um, and it's pretty tasty. So mm. there is a there is a template to make cocktails without sugar altogether. And so especially if you're worried about some of the you know health effects of artificial or even natural sweeteners, and you're definitely worried about glucose or straight white sugar, then yeah, maybe get a Ricky and, and get a non-alcoholic gin to put it in there. You know, Monday gin is a great one. Um or over there, uh, I think you have, um, um, oh gosh, what's the name of it? I can't think of it right now. Uh, also created by Jared Miller and Anastasia, uh, or Jared Brown and Anastasia Miller is uh, Sipsmith. Have uh, you tried the free, that before? The, the free glider, yes. Yes, indeed. I think it's delicious, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a whole bevy of really great non-alcoholic gins. So you can just make a non-alcoholic Ricky, you know, if, if you're really concerned about the sugar. So, so I think there are options and I think those options are, are kind of, to me, fun to explore. Amazing. Very well put. I think that's a nice segue for me to ask about some alcoholic, alcohol-free brands. You've mentioned a couple there. What's some of your go-to brands that you like using in cocktails? What's some stuff that you've really been surprised by, impressed by some stuff you want to shout about? I know there's, there's too many to name, uh, but yeah, uh, tell us about some, some alcohol-free products that you're enjoying at the moment. Yeah. Um, there's so many great ones that are just exploding out there. That's the really cool thing is that, uh, you know, and, and mindful drinking fest, the one that we do in the United States, um, is, and I, I assume the one, <laughs> the UK one too, is so people can try those. I mean, it, it is a little intimidating to go yeah. spend you know, X amount of dollars on a bottle that you're not sure how to use. And it also, you're not sure how it should taste. So, so I love that we get these opportunities to share all of these spirits with everybody. But among the ones that I like the best is one I used to work for. So call it biased if you want, but I really like Kentucky 74 by Spiritless. I don't know if it's available in the UK yet. Um, but it is a bourbon alternative and it works great in like an old fashioned Manhattan, all of those drinks, whiskey sour. Um, it's great. Monday, Jim, do you all get that over there? I haven't seen Monday over here yet. I'm curious if there's UK distribution yet. All right. Well, it doesn't matter because you have plenty of great gins over there. I haven't had Tangeray zero yet. Is that any good? It is. It's great. I'm surprised. I, we've had a few people from the States in the shop say that it's not over there yet, which surprises me because there's obviously Diageo behind that. So they should uh, hurry up and get some Tanqueray Zero over there for you. 
Yeah. Get on it, Diageo. I'm sure they're they're listening. Oh, yeah. (laughs) um, (laughs) So so I think that, you know, I would be curious to try that. Um, I really like Pathfinder, which is uh, in the United States, but is becoming kind of um, harder to get. It's a a bitter uh, based on gentry root. It's also uh, hemp-based as well. Uh, that that's really fun and delicious and kind of one of those out there cocktail ingredients. Not everything has to be analog, you know? Yeah. Um, I really like Thompson and Scott, uh, the naughty. I think that's delicious and uh, really easy to play with and make it using cocktails. For um, sure. I think those are really great, but I mean, this is so much out there. It's kind of, I could go on for a long time giving shout outs to brands, um, but there's so many delicious and great ones. Um. And then there's like a, a whole bunch of sort of brands that are building up around it too that that might be like all the bitter is a great example. You know, they they might not be like a principal spirit that you would use, uh, but they have bitters which are non-alcoholic. And even though I think that, you know, Angostura or any other bitter, you could probably add in a small amount and still be under like one or two drops and still be under uh, 0.5% alcohol, which is what it is in the States to call something non-alcoholic. Um, but for people who are abstaining completely and just the thought or the idea of alcohol may be triggering to them. Um, I think it's wonderful to have all the bitter, um, have these really great products. They do an aromatic, they do, uh, orange bitters and they do a, uh, a patient style bitters called New Orleans that work really well. And, and because I deal mostly in classic cocktails, you know, people will ask me this question. They'll say, if I had, if I stocked my home bar with just a few non-alcoholic spirits, how would I do it? And, and I would usually focus on the whiskey and gin category and then bitters, you know? Um, and then next to that, I might add vermouth and roots Divino, um, is, is my favorite. They do great work with their aperitifs. Um, but liars, a dry aperitif is pretty delicious too. If you're making a non-alcoholic martini, I think it's awesome. Sure. Yeah. I just tried roots Divino a few weeks ago, actually, they sent us a couple bottles and, and their, their dry vermouth is, is beautiful. I mean, I can see myself having a few spritzes with that as soon as the sun starts making more of an appearance. That's a very tasty vermouth for sure. Oh, absolutely. We're seeking out for sure. Amazing. What's the future of the no and low movement? We're, you know, we've come such a long way in, in the last five years, 10 years, even 12 months. What, what's your, What's your predictions for the category over the next kind of 12 to 18 months? Well, I think the prediction, I'm going to, I'm going to start from a longer term perspective. Um, and it's going to be the least punk rock thing I say to bring it back to the beginning. <laughs> As my prediction is normalcy. Mm. It's going to become normal. Um, and I think that that is really important because right now, in order to order drinks sometimes, especially in the United States, you have to tell your entire life story. You know, oh, I don't drink because, and then you have to go into it. Um, And that can be really intimidating and frustrating. Um, Or you go to a a space and they have a kiddie section that mentions non-alcoholic drinks, um, and you just feel like an absolute child ordering them. Um, So what I'm hoping, and I believe that will happen with people like yourself and me advocating it and, and Club Soda and all of the great organizations out there that are pushing for this is to make it normal to walk into space, not have to explain your whole life story, be able to order off the big boy menu and get it, get a drink without also being questioned about, you know, like, do you know that's not alcoholic? You're like, yes, I know. It says so, you know, I'm, I'm good. I can read. So I think that's what I hope for. What I, what I think is going to happen over the next year or so is that we're going to see the, you know, we're going to continue to see the proliferation of products, but we're going to also see some come in and out. I mean, there are various quality levels and non-alcoholic uh, products. And I think that, unfortunately, sometimes people judge the entire category by one sip they take of something, and that's not fair. Um, there are lots of products out there, and some of them are just not very good. And eventually, they will probably, you know, fold. And those that are good, I think, will rise to the top. Quality is t- still matters. People want products that are delicious. Um, and so I think that that is, is an important part of it. So we're going to see a little shakeup there. Um, 
I also do believe that more and more people will be advocating for non-alcoholic cocktails, specifically in bars and restaurants, um, because I think the word is getting out. People see that it's valuable in the sense that they can make money off it, but it's also valuable because it creates a, a more inclusive space. It it also, you know, you, you can avoid people being too hammered as well. So, so there's lots of really good reasons to incorporate those programs. And so I think people will be incorporating them and advocating them simultaneously, which is really cool. And, and hopefully we see the proliferation of mindful drinking fests throughout the world. 100%. I think that's, that's a beautiful outlook for the future. And and I think you're absolutely right. We're we're on to bigger and better things. We're on to more acceptance, and you know, there's still a lot of work to do. But we're all in this together. And for everyone listening, you know, thank you for your support in the mindful drinking world. And we hope you've learned some some cool stuff from Derek today. Derek, where can people find you if they want to reach out? If they want to follow what you're up to, uh, get in touch. So I um, I am locatable on Instagram at Positive um, Damage Inc. Uh, and I'm uh, on LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, in Twitter, it's Positive DMG. Um, and I have a website, PositiveDamageInc.com, which is probably the easiest way to find me. Um, and people can sign up for my uh, mailing list and I'll make sure to send them out information about what I'm up to. Um, but but I want to thank you and I want to thank Club Soda and and uh, London for for leading so many aspects of this. It's really cool and um, and I've always been inspired by what you all are doing over there and, and hopefully I can come over and, and visit soon. We hope so too. Uh, it'd be great to see you and I mean thank you again so much for coming on today. You're an absolute legend. It's been an honor to have this chat with you. So really appreciate your your honesty and all your knowledge. It's it's been it's been marvelous. Yeah, thank you so much, John. Thanks, Derek. We'll talk soon. All right. All right, bye. So, Drew, what did you think? Inspiring, motivational, and just, like, I, I continue to be inspired by these stories of people who work inside the drinks industry who revolutionize their own personal relationship with alcohol and then begin to have a positive influence on people around them. That is so inspiring. There are so many people who are uh, angry and upset with alcohol companies, sometimes for very good reasons, because they can be shit. Um, But then there are like these gems of people inside the industry who are doing extraordinary things and for me that is just one of the things which i've always loved about club soda is that we are willing to talk to anyone um in our mission to help people drink mindfully and live well we don't care who you work for what matters to us is that you want to do good things and derek brown is a man who is doing good things and to talk about one specific good thing that he is doing he is your gateway to a thing called tales of the cocktail and a visit you are making to New Orleans. Do you want to New say? Orleans. New Orleans, baby. New Orleans, baby. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You'll be on Bourbon Street with your with your beads. Oh, <laughs> with my beads. Swaying to the music, to the oh, jazz okay. rhythms of New Orleans. No, anyway, <laughs> no. You're, you're going to New Orleans to Tales and Cocktail. Do you want to tell people a little bit about what that is and why you're going and why it's a seriously amazing deal that we should be super excited about? Tales of the Cocktail is the United States of America's biggest cocktail festival. It is absolutely mammoth. It goes on for a week all around New Orleans, pop-up after pop-up bar and every bar and cocktail menu after cocktail menu and some of the best bartenders in the world head there for to join panels and workshops and talks and on every different subject that's going on in our industry right now it's a mecca for hospitality and and to be honest it's been on my bucket list since I kind of got serious about being in this industry so to be asked so you know so soon into my AF journey is I'm pretty honored and uh, to be asked along to join a, a panel hosted by Derek Brown is extra special. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's it's me, Derek, Alex Jump from Focus on Health, 
Robert Bjorn Taylor, who's an amazing beverage consultant in the States, and Kat Kinsman. These are all people who have their own story and different voices, and we all come at it from a different angle. So it's going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. The The talk is called Let's Stop Not Talking About It. And nice. it's all, all about hospitality, wellness, and addiction, and, and drugs, and alcohol. And we're going to we're going to get deep into it. You know, nothing's off the table. So if, if anybody is going to be around for tales, please do come. Um, all yeah. the details you can, you can find on the website or get in touch with me, but you know, a lot of our friends are out there doing lots of exciting bits, everybody from brands like liars to, uh, Kemi Vidal, she's going to be doing a few workshops and, you know, she was episode one of this podcast. If you haven't already listened, so super, super chuffed to be going out there and just soaking it up. Mm-hmm. It'll be yeah. unique to go out there as a sober person. It's a bit of a big party, tales, yeah. but there's also a ton of wellness stuff going on. Yeah. Like I mentioned, focus on health, Joshua Gandhi, Lauren Paler, Alex Jump, they're doing a bar takeover at the Chloe. Like we're doing so many things. There's Ben's friends are doing runs every morning. Like there's a lot of good stuff. Liars, ritual, seed lip. Everyone's there. It's going to uh-huh. be good. It's going to be a good time. Um, so you can follow me on Instagram for all of the updates. It'll be like 90% food, 10% AF cocktails. Which is entirely fair enough. Also worth saying, Tales of the Cocktail, one of the other things which it does is is a massive fundraiser for the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation, which is a big US charity supporting people in the drinks industry in the States. We have the Drinks Trust in the UK, there's the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation in the States doing incredible things in their industry to support people's well-being. And so bringing all of these drinks people together in one place is also an amazing fundraiser for the foundation. And then that helps lots of people who need support across the industry. Because of course, you know, when you work professionally with alcohol, sometimes people run into difficulties personally and we need to be there to catch people. That's it. That's it. They're a great company, great foundation, and um, excited to be part of it this year. It's super, super cool. Do follow Noah. You are at Noah Villeneuve underscore. You're damn right. On Instagram. If you want to follow Club Soda, we're at Join Club Soda pretty much everywhere on social. We're joinclubsoda.com for everything else. Do you swing by our tasting room at 39 Drury Lane if you want to try some of Noah's amazing cocktails um, and you want to discover all sorts of alcohol free beers, wine, spirits, and many, many other things. Uh, we will be back next week with who are we with? Next week, mm-hmm. we are with Luke Bowes of the beer brand Lucky Saints. Excellent. We will be looking forward to catching up with Luke then, and we will look forward to you being part of that with us. We will catch up with you next week. Cheers. Nolans, baby!